If you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter six is where we're gonna be this morning. If you don't have a paper copy, you have an electronic copy, go ahead and open it up. Uh, it'll be on the screen for you here behind me as we read together as well this morning. Uh, but we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount together, uh, looking at Jesus' teaching. And Jesus, what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives us a vision for what he deems to be the good life. Right? which usually runs counter to our visions for the good life in modern American culture. And it's no different here in the text that we take a look at this morning. We've seen Jesus talk to us about anger and anxiety, about lust and about judgment, a judgmental spirit. We've seen him talk to us about how being poor in spirit and humble and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being salt and light. We've seen him talk to us about all kinds of aspects of what it looks like to live the good life and this is no different because Jesus' vision for the good life encompasses all of life, including what he says here in Matthew 6 about money and possessions. So let's read it together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have something in front of you to look at. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted about to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I showed up the wrong week, right? That's, that's what's running through your mind right now. Um, but I want to just be clear about a few things before we launch into the message this morning. And the first one is this, is that I don't think the American church talks about money enough, I don't think we, we, we think about money enough. And what I mean by that is this. I don't, I'm not saying that the American church doesn't ask for money enough. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the American church doesn't talk and think enough about money consistently enough to think thoroughly and biblically about money and possessions. And I think a part of the reason is because it makes us all a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Let me just go ahead and, just, I'm gonna go ahead and acknowledge that at the very outset. It makes us all a little bit uncomfortable to talk about money because we believe money should be something that's private and personal and not discussed publicly, right? That's how we view money and possessions. Uh, and the last thing that most modern American Christians want whenever they come to a Sunday service is to make be feel a little bit uncomfortable dealing with hard issues and topics in the scripture. And the last thing most modern American pastors want to do is make people feel uncomfortable coming to a service because they might not come back, right? And so we shy away from that. But according to Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, he says that, if, that G, of all of Jesus' life and teaching, that if you add all, all that he says, that, if you, that 15% of everything that Jesus says has something to do with money. 15% of Jesus' teaching has something to do with getting, keeping, using, distributing, and approaching wealth. Now, if you took Jesus as our pattern and you said we're gonna talk about money as much as Jesus does, then about every eight weeks throughout the course of a year, we'd be hitting on some, something to do with money and possessions. And, and even if we don't do it every eight weeks, it at least means this, is that we would talk about it more than we do, and we would think about it more than we do. So I want you to know that I, I, talking about money this morning, that this shouldn't be like the one time of the year that we kind of break out a money text and kind of talk through it, because I think God wants to do something in us 
through what he has to say about money and possessions because there's such a tie between money and our hearts. Between money and our hearts. Now, the second thing I wanna make clear is this, is this is not the I want you to give more money message so I can get a raise. Okay? I want you to know if you're new with us that, that I have no say over what I make here as the pastor of this church over my salary. That's a conversation between our elders and our finance team and I, to be quite honest, I don't wanna participate in that conversation because I don't ever want somebody to be able to come against me with accusations of being greedy or money hungry or just in this to milk people out of their hard earned cash. Right, that's the last thing that I want. So I'm not asking you to give more so I can make more. This church for the size that it is pays me a generous salary and I'm grateful to God for it. Right, it provides for my family's needs. Third, I wanna be real clear this morning as well that I'm not asking, that we're not talking about money this morning because the church is hurting right now. If you were here last week, you heard in the message how our elders and our church leadership and many members of our church over the course of the last uh, six to eight months have been on our knees asking, seeking, and knocking on God's door and how God has begun to answer and he's begun to open up opportunities and provide for us financially as a church so that every month in 2017, we've been operating in the black, whereas there were many months in 2016, we were bleeding out consistently in the red. And God's begun to turn people's hearts towards us. And as their hearts have turned towards us, they've begun to invest in what God is doing here. And we've been operating in the black. We've been receiving about three to five grand more every month than what we projected to receive in 2016 when we created the 2017 budget. So I'm not, I'm not talking about money this morning because we're hurting as a church and we need you to give more so we can stay afloat. That's not at all why we're talking about this. Let me tell you why we're talking about this. And I think it's the reason Jesus talks about this as well is because I want you to be joyful. I want you to be happy. I want you to find everlasting joy. An old Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McShane in one of his messages as he talked to his congregation about giving to the poor, listen to what he said. He said, oh my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, to the thankless and the undeserving. He says, Christ has done so and Christ is glorious and happy and so will you be. He says, it is not your money that I want but your happiness. Because remember he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's why we're talking about this because what Jesus is wanting to do is wrestle some of our hearts away from the mastery that money has had over it that we might experience joy and happiness and a freedom in life that we have never known before. That's why we're talking about it. Because most, for most of us, our deep, we, we believe that our deep, deep down, that we believe that our deepest joys will be found in money and material possessions that it can buy. That our deepest joys will be found there. We believe that our highest meaning will be found in our bank accounts, in our investment accounts, in the number of garage stalls on the outside of our home that we can store all of our stuff that our money has enabled us to purchase. Right, because our hearts believe that we will find security and status in possessions and money. And this is one of the reasons we need to talk about it biblically is because our hearts believe that. They're bent that way from our birth. Do you know that? Do you ever see a child whenever he gets a new toy? 
right? I see this in my children sometimes when we go to the store and there's a little piece of plastic there on the shelf, right? And they've got to have that new piece of plastic. That's basically what all toys are, little pieces of plastic. And so you, you buy them a little piece of plastic and they go out on the street with all their buddies and they're like, look at my new piece of plastic. That's not what they say. They talk about what the toy is, but they look at, look at this because there's this sense in which they know that they, if they have the latest and newest, then it's gonna, their status amongst all their buddies, all their friends is gonna raise just a little bit because they have the newest and nicest and latest and shiniest and prettiest. And to be honest, most of us as adults, we really don't grow out of that. Right? Whenever we get a new car, we build a new home, buy a new home, we get new toys or new tools, right? We want everyone to see because there's some level within our hearts, even if we don't acknowledge it all the time, where we believe that our security and our status is tied to our possessions and our money. And so our hearts are bent this way from birth, but also I want you to consider something. Not only are our hearts bent this way, but our minds are trained to think this way. See, every one of us in the room, regardless of whether you, whether you recognize it or not, you're being discipled. You're being discipled by someone, somehow. Someone is shaping the way that you think. Someone is shaping what you value. Now listen, I'm gonna speak some of your love languages this morning, okay? Listen, some of your love language, it's, it's not quality time, it's not words of affirmation, it's not physical touch, it's not uh, what, what are the, the other several love languages that, the, the, that he talks about in his book, but listen, some of your, your love language is country music, <laughs> all right? That's your love language. I'm gonna speak it to you for a moment, all right? In 2015, Chris Jansen, country music singer and songwriter, released a song on the country charts entitled, Buy Me a Boat. Man, it's speaking my love language, you know? <laughs> but listen, listen to the lyrics of the song. Now, if you listen to this song over and over, like when it first comes out, and then you know, they play it like 27 times a day on the radio, right? And you hear it over and over, it gets ingrained in your mind, it begins to shape the way that you think. Listen to the lyrics. A few of them are edited for content. But listen to what he says. He says, I ain't rich, but I sure do wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that had kicked the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. All right? I know everybody says that money can't buy happiness. Then in verse two he says, they call me redneck, white trash, and blue collar, but I could change all that if I had a couple million dollars. In other words, I would change how people perceive me. My status would rise. People would look at me differently. They would treat me differently. And I would even see myself differently. My own identity would change. He says, I keep hearing that money is the root of all evil and you can't fit a camel through the eye of a needle. I'm sure that's probably true, but it still sounds pretty cool. And then the chorus, because it could buy me a boat and it could buy me a truck to pull it. And it could even buy me a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. <laughs> I know what they say, that money can't buy everything. Well, maybe so, but it could buy me a boat. <laughs> See, our cult, we're being, the way that we think is being shaped. We're being discipled by someone, somehow, to think a certain way about money and possessions. But I want you to know that Jesus has a different vision for life. 
and it encompasses even how we see and how we use money. It's a vision where meaning is found and joy is measured not by our money and possessions and the things that it can buy, but by our participation in the advancement of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth where every person, tribe, nation, and tongue would hear of the name of Jesus and have an opportunity to respond to him in repentance and faith and enjoy him forever as he returns to establish his rule and reign and his kingdom comes on earth as it is now in heaven. Jesus says your joy and your happiness isn't found in your possessions but in your participation. Where you're investing your resources. So what does Jesus say about this? Now, I'm setting up a lot before we actually even get into the heart of the text because I wanna say what I'm not saying before I say what Jesus is saying. Okay, several things Jesus is not saying about money and possessions. First, he's not saying that it's wrong to make money. He's not saying that it's wrong even to make lots of money. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Nowhere in the Bible can you find where we are told that it is wrong to make lots and lots of money. What we are warned against in the Bible is not earning and making lots of money, but what we are warned against all over the Bible is keeping lots of money and the dangers and the warnings against wealth and riches. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about a man, a man who was already extremely wealthy, a man who had all kinds of grains and goods to his name, and he has a massive harvest that comes in. Well, instead of, instead of, uh, of, of, of getting rid of, giving away some of his holdings to bring the new harvest in, what he decides to do is he decides to keep everything that he has now, bring in everything that he's getting, and he's gonna just build bigger barns now to store all of his grains and goods. And at the end of that story, Jesus, Jesus calls the man a fool. A fool. Over and over again, the Bible warns us not about making lots of money, but about keeping lots of money. But I want you to also know that Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't save. Right, if you look at the Bible, the Bible's gonna commend saving to us. You look in Proverbs chapter six and we're told to consider the ant. Right, the ant who gathers and collects and he stores away because he doesn't know what's over the horizon and so he saves up food. He says it would be wise to follow the example of the ant. I want you to also know that he's, so he's not saying you can't save. I want you to also know he's saying that you, not saying that you can't enjoy nice things in life. But I think a part of our problem in modern America is that we enjoy nice things, but we don't enjoy them in moderation of both quality and quantity. And we'll talk more about that later. And I also want you to know finally, before we get to what Jesus is saying, that he's also not saying that you, in order really to be spiritual, you have to embrace a poverty spirituality that says, I've got to give everything away and live destitute in a van down by the river. That's not what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? And there's one big thing that I wanna tease out for us out of this text this morning, and that's this. What Jesus says about money and possessions and our relationship to them is that you, can, you have a choice between one of two options. You can use money and serve God or you can serve money and use God. I'll say that again. You can use money and serve God or you can serve money and use God. And look at what he says in verse 24, the end of the text that we read this morning. 
Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. For Jesus, when he speaks here, Jesus, I want you to notice that he doesn't lay out a moral imperative. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, hey, you know what? You shouldn't serve God and money. It's a bad thing, slap you on the wrist, right? You shouldn't do that or you should do the other. What Jesus lays out is not a moral imperative. What Jesus lays out is a logical impossibility because he doesn't say should not, he says cannot. You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible to serve two masters simultaneously whenever their wills and wishes collide with one another. You can't serve them both at the same time. That's what Jesus is saying here. So he's saying you have one of two options. Either you can build your life around the pursuit of, acquisition of, and retention of money and material possessions. Or you can build your life around participation in the advancement of God's kingdom as his gospel goes to the ends of the earth. You can only build your life on one foundation. You can only bend your knee to one master. You can only serve one of their wills. You cannot do them both. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus says one master will get your love and loyalty. Jesus says one master will have your devotion. In every instance when there's a competition, a collision, or a contradiction, one of them's gonna win and one of them's gonna lose, right? One of them's gonna experience your loyalty, the other one's gonna experience your betrayal. One will survive, the other will be destroyed. You can only serve one. And he said, you can either use money to serve God or you can serve money and use God. And I want you to know that that latter portion is the reason the prosperity gospel is so prevalent within our culture. Our hearts are bent that way from birth and we're trained in that culture. And so some are leveraging that, that the, the, the wickedness of our hearts and they're leveraging the training of our culture to say, listen, God wants you to be wealthy, man. God wants you to have all, all, everything your heart could possibly dream of having. God wants you to have all these things and so your life w- w- would lack no comfort or no pleasure. God desires that for you. In fact, you deserve that. Right? That kind of appeals to a heart that is bent to find security and significance and status in money and things, doesn't it? The reason the prosperity gospel is so prevalent is because there are so many people, even pastors, who are serving money and using God to get it. But Jesus says the other option, and you only have two. There's not a third. It's not like a, like a neutral Switzerland somewhere in the middle who never gets involved in the conflict. It's only one of two. And Jesus commends to us using money and serving God. You can only have one master. Now, how do you know if money has mastery over your heart? How do you know if if you're bending your will and bending your knee to money? I wanna give you a a biblical benchmark for that, okay? Let's do a little diagnosis this morning. Give you a biblical benchmark. One of the ways that you know, and I'm gonna tease it out in several different applications. One of the ways that you know is by measuring it against your giving to ministry and charity. You measure it by your giving to ministry and charity. 
right? That you, that you would give to support the ministry of a local church, that you would give to support missionaries on the field, that you would give to nonprofits who are doing great kingdom work by, by, by curing diseases and restoring people to health, that you would give to all kinds of endeavors that are doing good work to serve people. But you're giving to ministry and you're giving to charity. That's one of the ways you measure whether or not money has mastery over your heart. I'm gonna tease this out in several ways for you. First one is this. One of the ways to know that money has mastery over your heart is that instead of just saving, you're hoarding. There's a difference between the two. A big difference between the two. Kent Hughes, when an author said it this way, he said, we can enlarge our savings and build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave and only discover at the end that we have nothing and are in God's eyes fools. Because he's speaking not of those who saved wisely but who hoarded their wealth. Listen to what James says in James chapter five. James is speaking to wealthy Christians those who are in the church but have large sums of money and great status in society, listen to what he says. He speaks pretty challenging to them. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be like evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. In other words, language of judgment. Because, because James says, listen, your problem isn't that you saved, your problem is that you hoarded. Listen to the language that he uses of rotting and of corrosion. In other words, James says that riches that aren't rightly used, they begin to deteriorate and they will eventually stand in judgment over us. There's a difference between saving and hoarding. Now where that line is for you, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say You know what it boils down to? It boils down to the matter of the heart and who is your master, right? Do, do, when, when, when you see a need in someone else's life, do you wanna move towards it or do you say, well, they shouldn't have gotten themselves in that position to begin with? If it's the latter, you may have a, a heart that hoards. There's a difference. Second way this kind of fleshes out in our lives is to know if money has mastery over you is if you give to ministry and charity only in ways that benefit you personally. Right? In, in uh, Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells, uh, you find another account of Jesus in his ministry. You find a story of him dining in the home of a Pharisee on the Sabbath. And at one point he turns to the man who had invited him and he, this, is what he, this is what he says to him. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because you, they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus says essentially this, he's operating in a culture that had benefactors. And a benefactor was somebody who was at a different level or strata of society than you were. So they were a little bit above you, you're a little bit beneath them. And so if they asked you for a favor and you did them a favor, then they would give you access to the next kind of strata of societal rings for you to operate in. And so you kept trying to move up the ladder, even back in the day, there was still a ladder to climb back in the day. You kept moving up the ladder by doing favors for benefactors just a little bit higher than you were and then they would bring you up to their level and then you would do one for somebody who's just a little bit higher than they were and they would bring you up to their level and you kept climbing up that ladder 
And Jesus says, this is the culture in which you live where the only time people invite folks to a feast, the only time they're willing to lay down their lives and goods and worldly goods for people is when it can benefit them personally. But Jesus says, listen, when you give a feast, when you throw a party, don't just invite those who can return the favor to you, who can give you access to a higher level of status in society, but invite people who can do nothing for you. One of the ways to know if money has mastery over your heart is if you only use it for your own benefit. You might give, but only if they're gonna put your name on a building. Right? Like, I need a little plaque there. Make me feel good. Or, or, we'll, or we'll, 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 we'll invite our, our boss over, right, for dinner, but we won't invite maybe our, our neighbor over for dinner because they can't really do anything to benefit us. Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, when you throw a party, you can't invite any of your friends. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's, saying you, he's not saying you can't invite your neighbors, you can't invite your friends, or you can't invite your boss. What he is saying is you leverage your resources in ways that will be for the good and welfare of others, but will have no personal benefit to you. Another way to know if money may have mastery over your heart is is, if, is to look at your understanding of necessities and luxuries. Of the, the difference between necessities and luxuries. See, in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, you see Mark records this instance in which Jesus and his disciples are at the temple and they're seeing folks come by and make their offerings. And listen, listen to what's recorded in Mark 12. It says, and Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And his disciples, uh, he called his disciples to him and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they are all contributing out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Jesus says basically, those who were very wealthy came by and they made offerings, but you know what they made offerings out of? Their leftovers. They offered out, basically their offering cost them nothing because they still were able to maintain exactly the same lifestyle and do exactly all the things they wanted to do and buy all the things they wanted to buy and go all the places they wanted to go. In other words, their offering didn't cost them anything. They gave out of their leftovers, he said, but she, she gave out of her livelihood. Everything that she had to live on, she put in that box and she entrusted it to God because she entrusted herself to God. See, there's, there's a, oftentimes there's a distortion in our understanding of necessities and luxuries, isn't there? Of what we actually need versus what we may desire. And oftentimes we get that flipped around um, and, and when we get it flipped around, here's what happens is that there's never really an, ever, uh, an increasing gap between the life that we could live and the lifestyle that we do live, right? One of the ways to know that money has mastery over your heart is if there's, is as, as, your, as your income increases, then your lifestyle continues to increase at the same rate. It continues to go up and to the right at the same rate that your income does as opposed to there being an increasing gap between the life that you do live versus the life that you could live if you leveraged all your resources on yourself. Because most of us see our, the, the money that we spend, we see the money that we spend on ourselves as necessities and the money that we spend on giving to charity and ministry and to the poor, we see that as a luxury. 
And, and, and that, that, that means if, if that's you, then money has mastery over your heart. Listen, John Wesley was an old British preacher and, um, back in the day, and he, he, he in his, first, his first, first year of ministry, I think the, the, the historian tells he earned like 30 pounds. And so he, 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 he lived on uh, uh, 27 and gave away you know, three, he gave his tithe. The next year he earned 40 pounds, but he only lived on 30. The next year he earned you know, 60 pounds, but he only lived on 30. The next year he earned 100 pounds, but he only lived on 30. By the end of his career, he was earning 1,400 pounds and he continued to live on 30. There was this ever-increasing gap between the life that he did live and the life that he could live because he understood what was necessity and what was luxury. Now, finally, one of the uh, final way that I'll talk about this morning that you can know if money has mastery on your heart and that security and status that you're finding it in, in money and possessions is this, is if it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Some of you heard me tell a story before. There was an old British farmer who discovered that one of his cows was pregnant, right? And so he comes into his wife and he rejoices. They rejoice and celebrate together because they're gonna have a calf on the farm. Now, he already had enough cows to supply all of his family's needs. He had enough to milk, he had enough to slaughter, to kill for some meat. He was, they were set for a while. And so he determined that whenever this calf was born that he was going to sell it and take some of the profit, and take the profit off of it. Well, when, the, when it came time for the cow to give birth, Right? The cow gives birth and lo and behold, there's two calves, it's twins. Right? I don't know if they were paternal or not, I'm not sure, but they were, they were two cows. And so he goes into his wife and says, honey, there's two cows, God has blessed us tremendously. And since we are Christians, when it comes time to sell these cows, we're gonna take the profit from one and we will keep it, but we'll take the profit from the other and we will give it away to the church, to ministry. She says, honey, that is so generous of you. And so as time goes on, he continues to care for the calves and raise the calves. And one morning he goes out to the barn and there's two, the two calves were, were there, but one of them was still alive and one of them had died. And when the farmer comes back into the house, he comes back in with his head down and he's talking to his wife and she could tell something's wrong. And she says, honey, what's wrong? And he says, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> and she goes, I don't remember you setting apart one of those calves as unto the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. When he was born, I said, this is the Lord's calf. <laughs> See, the point of the story is that whenever money has mastery over our hearts, it's always the Lord's calf that dies. So when things get really tight for us financially, because we live in a culture that says significance and status comes with money and possessions, and so many of us, what we've done is we've redlined ourselves and our finances to such a degree that there's rarely any margin there. And so whenever hard times may come, what happens is the first place that we cut is not from our hobbies, it's not from the restaurants that we eat at or the shopping that we do or the vacations that we're gonna take. We don't take a lesser vacation. We don't put a hiatus on buying clothes, right? even though we've got enough in our closet to clothe three, you know, clothe three people for like six weeks. We don't, we don't do any of those things, but the first place that we begin to pull back from is ministry and charity because it's always the Lord's calf that dies whenever money has mastery over your heart. You can either... You can either serve God and use money or serve money and use God. Jesus says, you don't have another option. And so here's a question for us. 
as we close, how is it that we break free from the mastery that money and possessions have over our heart? And Jesus gives us an answer here. In the text, I want you to look at what he says in verses 22 and 23. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, if you're gonna break free from the mastery of money over your heart, you've gotta learn to gaze at glory. You gotta learn to gaze at the glory of God. You gotta learn to fix your eyes on God and all that he is and all of his majesty and all of his mercy and all of his grace and all of his glory. You gotta fix your eyes on him. Jesus says what you fix your gaze upon will determine what preoccupies your attention and what captures your affections which ultimately will shape your actions. It's what you fix your eyes on. Notice the language Jesus uses there. He didn't say that the eyes are the window to the soul, right? He's not writing Hallmark cards to go on the shelf for Valentine's Day. (laughs) He didn't say the eyes are the window to the body. He says your eyes are the lamp of the body. In other words, the eyes are not a passive pane of glass through which you see into the life, but the eyes have a navigational function for your life. They are an active part of shaping your inner life. And Jesus says what you fix your eyes on, what you look at will lead you. What you gaze at is going to guide you. And so Jesus says if the eye is full of light, if you fix your eyes on things that are pure and noble and praiseworthy and just and honorable, if you fix your eyes on things that are true, as Paul says in Philippians, then it will begin to fill your body with, it will fill you with light because you're fixing your eyes on things that are light and the lamp is coming in and illuminating your inner life. But if you fix your, if your eyes are full of darkness, he says, then how great would the darkness inside be? He says, your eyes have a navigational function for you. Listen, in the days before GPS, right? I love the fact that I can just get in the car and type in and, you know, Google Maps and it tells me where I need to go, where I need to turn, um, where, where traffic is gonna be and where there's gonna be a slowdown, all those things. But before that happened and before the days of even radar, before the days of even modern navigational charts and maps, when somebody set across the ocean to sail from one continent to the other, they navigated by fixed positions in the heavens, right? So they navigated by the stars and most often they navigated by the North Star, So they would fix their eyes on the North Star because the North Star, no matter where they were on the horizon, it never moved. It was always a fixed position that showed them in relation, it showed them where they were in relationship to where they needed to go. So they were gazing at something, they were looking at something that was leading them, it was guiding them. And what you and I need if we're gonna begin to wrestle our hearts away from the mastery of money is that we need a fixed position in our lives that we can gaze at that's not going to shift, that's not going to change, that's not going to falter, that's not going to move to the right or to the left. And James says that this God that we love, worship, and serve is one who, with whom there is no shifting like the changing of the shadows. And what we need to learn to do is fix our gaze on him and he will guide us fill our eyes with the beauty and glory and majesty of Jesus. See, if you're feeling, if, you're, if what you're looking at, you're filling your eyes with self, right? If you're staring in the mirror and you're looking at yourself or you're looking through catalogs, right? I get these catalogs from Bass Pro Shop about once every three weeks because they know that I shop there. And so it comes in the mail, right? And I open it up and it's like a wonderland of stuff, 
right, sitting before me on the table. And I begin to turn through all of the new rods and all of the new reels and all of the new baits, which are supposed to catch like 73 fish a trip, right? You can catch all kinds of fish and bigger fish on all these baits. I start looking at all the boats, right, because they're shiny and new and nice and the carpet doesn't have tears in them and you don't have to constantly work on the engine. And so all this stuff that's there in front of me and I gaze at it, you know what it begins to do? It begins to awaken desires in my heart thinking, I need that, I need that, I need that. Same is true. You watch television, commercials come on, and they're intended, if you actually watch it live still, but they're intended to capture you and draw you in and say, you need this. If you had this, your life would be more fulfilling. Your life would be more significant. Your status would rise. People would look at you differently, right? If we spend our eyes fixated upon the wheels and the tires that we want on our vehicle, if we spend our li- fix our eyes on the kind of hobbies and the, the equipment that we need for them, if we fix our eyes on a bigger home, right, with more square footage, we fix our eyes on new floors and new countertops and new backsplashes, I'm not saying that any of that is wrong, but if we fix our eyes on it, it's gonna awaken desires within our hearts and it's gonna pull us towards it. But listen, if we fix our eyes, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, his work of redemption complete. If we fix our eyes on him and he becomes the north star of our life, if we're serving God, if we're anxious about the things of God, Right, then our anxieties about money begin to dissipate because we're now anxious about what God is doing on different parts of the globe. We're now anxious about the ministry of John Graham in India as he plants churches and trains pastors. We now become anxious about the ministry of Andre over in Moldova in Eastern Europe as he trains up athletes and sends them out as missionaries on the mission field. We become anxious about the kids in our community as we give ourselves to serving at VBS, as we fix our eyes on what who God is and what God is doing. As we gaze at him, he begins to guide us. And slowly, the mastery of money begins to subside, it begins to fall away and the mastery of Jesus in your life, which is freeing and full and joyful, begins to take center stage. What are you gazing at? What's the North Star in your life? Where do you spend the majority of your time and energy looking at? Because what you look at will lead you. Right? Do you spend the majority of your time looking at sale catalogs for dresses and makeup and I don't know what else we look at. I've been married to one for 16 years. I'm still trying to figure that out some days. What are you looking at? As we close, I want to encourage you to fix your eyes on a God who loves his enemies and died for them, even while you were one of them. And he prayed for those who would persecute him. If you would do that, it would lead you to become a loving, gracious, and compassionate person at great cost to yourself. Not doing it for the benefit of yourself, but at cost to yourself. That if you would fix your eyes, and I would fix my eyes on a God who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, then it will lead us to become a person who comes under others to see them flourish and succeed, as opposed to over others to use them and manipulate them to get what we want from them. 
If you're looking at a God who, though he was rich, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich, it will lead you down a path to becoming radically and sacrificially generous. What are you gazing at? Because what you're looking at is going to lead you one way or another. You only have two options. Use money and serve God. Or serve money and use God. And I want you to know that Jesus wants to break you free from the mastery of money in your life. Not so I can get a raise. Not because we're dying as a church financially. But so that you can be happy. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we recognize, God, I recognize that my heart is so bent in this area. And God, I, I, I preach to myself so much this morning, God, and I, I just pray that it would, might be for the benefit of someone else in this room. Father, I pray that you would raise up a church here at Redeemer that would serve you and use money. That we would not leave money to the godless, to those who would just only want to spend it on themselves, God, but that we would leave, that money would be leveraged by the godly for your kingdom purposes, for your mission across the globe, for the care for orphans and widows, that it would go toward those who are poor, both those that we might consider to be the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. That we would be a radically generous people because our north star is a God who emptied himself of all of his riches for our sake. So that we might know the fullness of relationship with you. God, I pray that as we go from this place today, that as, as, as we sing, as we celebrate what you're doing in us, God, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be fixed on Jesus and that he would begin to set us free from money, to serve you, to serve you as our Father, that we would bend our knees to your will joyfully and happily as a response to all that you've given and all that you've done. We're going to sing a song this morning as we close and I just want to invite you if you're here this morning and you've come to realize that that for all of your life money's had mastery over you. For all of your life you've been bending your knee to material possessions and wealth and that you've never bent your knee to Jesus. You've never come in repentance and turned away from the mastery of money and put yourself under his good and gracious rule to find freedom. This morning, I want to extend that offer to you. If you're here this morning and that's you, I want you to know as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be in room five just outside these doors and I would love to visit with you about what it looks like to turn from the mastery of money and come under Jesus' rule and reign in your life. If you're here this morning and, and, and you realize that money has begun to creep back in as master for you I want to invite you as you stand and sing that it might just be a sweet time of repentance with you and the Lord and that you would find freedom and forgiveness you would find fullness of joy in him
as you know that the only place that you can find security is not in your investment, your bank accounts, or your home that you've built for yourself, or the retirement that you've planned. But the only place that you can find security is in a God who has given himself for you. So however you need to deal with God this morning, I invite you to do that as we stand and sing together.